0: We've been working our way through this series, Adrift, and uh, doing so, looking at uh, passages of Scripture that perhaps are not particularly familiar to us. Um, hanging out in the prophets, uh, the prophets of exile—a period in in Israelite history after Jerusalem, or was defeated. Um, it was destroyed, uh, sort of in stages, but. After Jerusalem was defeated and the, the people were taken to, to Babylon to, to live there with no hope of return for at least uh, 70 years, and, and so the, the, there was a lot of writing that took place, a lot of processing of their circumstances, and it, it's that, um, those writings that come from this time of national disorientation that we've been looking at. And uh, we've we've covered Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and today we we look at Daniel. I said to someone the other week, I said, uh, really, this is the easiest way to teach these prophets because I get to pick the easiest to understand, the the most interesting parts out of 50 chapters and talk about that. If I was to go through it chapter by chapter, it would be a... uh, Uh, If we did Ezekiel for a year, it would be perhaps an interesting year, but a long year. Uh, So um, this is just giving us a a little glimpse into these books of the Bible uh, that are perhaps unfamiliar to us. And so if you haven't read them before or if you're struggling with the language, um, then then I apologize for that. It just takes some getting used to, I think, takes some exposure to understand what's going on. And in a couple of weeks, we will start a a new series looking at the I Am statements of Jesus. Who is Jesus uh, from the Gospel of John? So we'll be back on more familiar territory in in a couple of weeks. Most of us, I think, are fairly familiar with the story of Daniel. He was taken captive in Jerusalem um, by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Bonus points, if you can spell Nebuchadnezzar, first time, no no erasing. Nebuchadnezzar came and defeated Jerusalem, but didn't destroy it at that point. And he took the nobility and the educated and the wealthy back to Babylon. He took the gold and uh, valuable items from the temple and, and took them back to Babylon and made, although he allowed Israel, uh, Jerusalem, the, the, the Jews, to continue to have a king, they had to pay tribute and were very much under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. So Daniel is one of these uh, Jews that are taken, probably young and wealthy in a, in a leading family in Jerusalem and taken back to Babylon. And it's interesting to compare his circumstance with Ezekiel, who we talked about last week. Ezekiel was also part of probably the same journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. Ezekiel was not educated in in the ways of government. He was in line to be a priest. He was a, a Levite. And... Ezekiel ended up on, in a refugee camp by the side of an irrigation canal. That was where he encountered God, probably put to work in manual labor, uh, construction projects, uh, farming, that kind of thing. Daniel, on the other hand, was recognized for his ability and was integrated into the Babylonian civil service. And it was a grueling process. It was about three years of training. Amongst other things, he had to learn the language in that time, uh, both written and and spoken. And so Daniel and uh, we know his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and um, also many others of his peers were, were brought into government service. But Daniel and his three friends were different, it seems, from many of their peers who were part of an ungodly city, an ungodly aristocracy back in Jerusalem. When they got to Babylon, they said, we are going to uh, live um, in a way that honors God. That was what Daniel and his friends said. They remained loyal to God, and as a result... His friends were thrown into a fiery furnace and Daniel was thrown to the lions, literally. Um, but, but on each occasion, God protected them. If you're like me, you may think of these stories and Daniel's faithful prayer life as the primary focus of the book. But Daniel is included among the book of prophecies, the books of prophecy in the Old Testament for a reason. As dramatic as the stories are, most of the book describes dreams, visions, and prophecies directed at various kings of Babylon. And so as we're continuing this sermon series adrift, we're going to ask Daniel what we can learn about living in an unfamiliar environment, in an environment that has changed from what we expected, from we expected life to zig and life zagged. And uh, it did so for Daniel, and many of us are experiencing that same uh, effect. So as a reminder of where we've come, we've got up on the screen here over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What did Jeremiah Have to teach us. Jeremiah told us to settle down, don't don't keep longing for the good old days, and pray for the peace and the prosperity of our community. Get used to where you are and pray for the peace and the prosperity of your community. Don't become insular. Last week, Ezekiel taught us to use the time for personal introspection and repentance and growing closer to God. And overall, both prophets give a significant portion of their books, their prophecies, uh, to future hope that God has something better in store, regardless of how bad it is. Now, we may or may not see it in our lifetime, but God is still at work to accomplish His goals. So Daniel is going to build on this foundation. And the first thing I notice about Daniel is that he takes Jeremiah's advice to heart. Put down roots, plant a garden, get a job, invest yourself in that job. And he does as a Babylonian civil servant. Due to his dedication and to God's blessing, he rises through the ranks of the Babylonian government. He gains a reputation as a leader of wisdom and insight. And it's interesting to see that Daniel is aware of Jeremiah's prophecy. Uh, Even though Jeremiah was was in Jerusalem and Daniel was in Babylon, the prophecy did make its way there. Jeremiah wasn't just sitting in Jerusalem writing down, hey, this is my message for Babylon, but it never left the city. It made its way to Babylon, to the Jewish community there. Daniel, in chapter 9, just in the first couple of verses there, Daniel says this, I understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel then goes on to detail this long prayer. But Daniel wasn't just taking this promise, this prophetic promise for granted. God said, you'll return in 70 years. And Daniel says, I'm still going to pray about that. Don't change your mind, God. Make sure it happens. And, And perhaps even though he would be, what, I'm guessing 80, 90 at the time, um, he was perhaps hoping that he would be one of those able to return to Jerusalem. Daniel also follows Ezekiel's advice, uh, because at the end of that same chapter, after he has prayed, we get this summary, and uh, Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God. Daniel is generally regarded as a man of integrity. In fact, that's one of the key words we're going to see in just a moment. And yet, he uses this time of disorientation to pray to God, to spend time in prayer. And a significant part of his prayer, when he summarizes what he was praying about, he says, I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God. That's exactly what Ezekiel said to do. He said there were prophecies against the leadership of Jerusalem, of Israel. There were prophecies against the individuals saying don't blame other people, take responsibility. And we see Daniel doing that on both counts here. Although governmental corruption was one of the major reasons that Israel found itself in exile, yes, they were ungodly, but that was expressed through this injustice, Daniel didn't join in, didn't participate in that ongoing corruption when he arrived in exile, arrived in Babylon. The other leaders, his peers, assumed that that find corruption that they could use against him they they were trying to we read earlier how they sought to when daniel was about to be promoted over all the other administrative leaders they they said let's let's find let's let's do some homework let's find out how he's extorting the public how he's stealing from the king how he's accumulating wealth and for, for himself, let's find out where he's slipped up and he's missed something and, and disappointed and not met expectations. They expected to find that. And, and I think that's because that's the way they lived. That's the way they ran things. Uh, we see uh, when, when Daniel at one point wanted to say to, to King Nebuchadnezzar himself, to, to avoid God's judgments. He says this in um, chapter 4 and verse 27. He says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel could say to the face of the king himself, you're, you're wicked You need to change the way you live. You need to be kind to the oppressed. You're oppressing people. And and so that was just the expectation for how life went. But when they went looking for Daniel, when they went looking for Daniel, they couldn't find anything. And so this is our first principle. Um, Here, let me just read those verses. We're told in uh, chapter 9, verse 6, they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him. And they concluded, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel. Daniel was a man... Of integrity. And so, the first principle, I think we've had it up there for a little bit. Uh, you should have memorized it by now. When we find ourselves adrift, remain faithful to God. You see, we, we say that, we go, we're sitting in church, and we go, yes, of course, I'll remain faithful to God. But, but let's not pretend that that's easy. Right? We look at Daniel's circumstance. There are all sorts of pressure for him to be unfaithful to God, to assimilate. That sort of becomes this key word, to assimilate not just into his job within the government, but to assimilate into the religion, into the culture, into the values of that government and of that that culture. Remain faithful to God. Maintain your integrity and your connection with God. I'm convinced that there's a, there's a connection between Daniel's commitment to prayer. And we saw that in the, the reading about the, that we had earlier, that he was thrown to the lions because he refused to stop praying how many times a day? Three times a day. And that wasn't just because he had three meals a day and it was, God, God, thank you for this food, Amen. This is three times of connection with God. And that fueled, kept him focused, and fueled his his integrity in all that he did. And so I think there's something that we can learn there. Now I have one other principle that we can take with us today. Although Daniel worked within the government bureaucracy, and at one point he was promoted, I think very briefly, uh, to third highest official in the country, in in the empire. Um, That's in chapter 5, verse 29, if you want to check that out. Daniel, so despite that position and that power and that authority that he had, he was an impressive figure. Daniel never placed his hope in human government. In fact, most of Daniel's prophecies predict the downfall of human government, predict the downfall of kings and of kingdoms. Let's have a look uh, at at just one of those visions from uh, Daniel chapter 2. And here Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He can't remember the dream. He gets mad with his wise men his magicians because they can't tell him what it was that he dreamed they thought he was being completely unreasonable he said well i'll just execute you just to really prove how unreasonable i can be daniel comes to the rescue and uh, through god's insight is able to tell nebuchadnezzar his dream and this is the dream it's a statue that has a head of gold a chest and arms of silver belly and thighs of bronze legs of iron Feet of iron and clay, a mixture. And then, but there's more to it. I couldn't get it all on the slide. Daniel continues, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not made by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of what this symbolism means, except Daniel tells us, without naming, giving specific names, Daniel tells us that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar himself. The Babylonian empire at its zenith was a magnificent empire. And uh, for, for power and for culture, and, and so it was gold. Okay? But it came to an end. And it was replaced by another empire, not quite as magnificent. It was made of silver. But then that empire was replaced, and it, along came a, a third empire. It was made of bronze. A fourth empire, in turn, came along, legs made of iron, and ultimately feet of iron and clay, not a particularly strong mixture there at the bottom, and not particularly attractive either. So... Things have kind of deteriorated along the way. And then there's this stone. So, so each of those, we'll get to the stone. Each of those represents the end of an empire. And so it's, it, Daniel has already seen his own home city be destroyed. Now he tells Nebuchadnezzar this all-conquering Babylonian empire. You're going to be destroyed. He knew that the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians, the Assyrians had defeated the northern kingdom of Samaria and, and the Babylonians will be gone and these other three or four kingdoms, they'll all be gone. And ultimately there's this rock that comes, it comes from heaven. It's cut without, without hands and it destroys all of them. Daniel knew that no matter how grand, how powerful, how broad the, the territory, how strong the army that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Don't put your faith in kingdoms or governments or kings or leaders. I think we can struggle with that at times. In chapter 4, Daniel has another prophecy that I alluded to before about Nebuchadnezzar himself becoming filled with pride. And, and although the kingdom remained intact, Nebuchadnezzar is out in a field like a crazy man, living as a wild animal and eating grass. And he does that for a period of years. And then he prophesies to, to King Belshazzar and says, Tonight, or, or your kingdom is about to be taken. You are about to crumble. And so he's witnessed firsthand the fall of these mighty kings. And so Daniel chose to trust God, not kingdoms. He worked within kingdoms. He he worked well. He, He was a good leader, a good worker, someone who could be trusted. But he didn't trust the kingdom. He trusted God. And this is our second principle. Kingdoms will let you down. Governments will let you down. Countries will let you down. God won't let you down. And so I don't know if I have to connect the dots for you, but I'll do it anyway. Because there's an awful lot of people that are at a place in life where they're putting their trust to improve society's outcomes in the next in it's society's problems in the outcome of the next election that November can fix things. And I see Christians who are more willing to go out on a limb, are more willing to be vulnerable and outspoken and let everybody know what they're thinking and matters of, of, um, for, for their political party, for their political beliefs, for who they're voting for. They're, they're more persuasive about why you should agree with them and vote with them and see things the same way And and these outspoken warriors for their viewpoint, I don't hear anything from the other three years of the election cycle about their passion for following Jesus or or how important their faith is for their lives. And and I try not to be judgmental, but it's really hard for me to, to believe That there aren't people that sit in church on Sunday that haven't crossed the line into placing greater faith in the government and the government processes than they have faith in God. And so I think Daniel speaks to us and he says, when you're adrift, particularly when you're adrift, any time this applies, but particularly when your world is in turmoil, Remain faithful to God. And don't tie your boat to a kingdom. Whether it's a Democrat kingdom, a Republican kingdom, a third-party kingdom, or even the American kingdom, Daniel and history, world history, tell us that kingdoms of all sorts come and kingdoms go. And the only kingdom worth tying our boat to is the kingdom of God. And so this is where it gets very delicate for us to to try and navigate, because Daniel certainly participated in the political process. He participated in government, he he used his power and his opportunities to act with integrity. Um, They weren't a democracy, he wasn't representing the population, (laughs) he was representing the king, but, but to treat people fairly is the impression that we're given to represent God in all that he did. And, and so in that sense, he's an example. That, that He's not saying just walk away from everything that might be to do with politics or government. It's all evil. But to see it as a tool that can be used to God's glory, as an opportunity to further God's kingdom, not to coerce people, Not to impose Christianity on people, but but to represent, to allow us to represent God to others. But even when we're involved in that, don't place your hope in that system. Don't confuse what's temporary with what's permanent. And I think this helps us understand the significance of Jesus' teaching. I don't know... uh, we may not always make this connection, but Jesus, later on, at the end of, like, Matthew 24, he's going to quote Daniel. Jesus knew his Bible. He knows Daniel, and these images are certainly part of, of, what, of his Bible that he's, he knows well. And so, immediately in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is baptized. He goes into the wilderness, Right? And in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, who's there to meet him? Okay, one person. Um, So Satan's there, all right? We'll we'll go back and we'll read this sometime soon, okay? And bring everyone up to speed. So at the end of the 40 days of fasting, Satan is there waiting for him. Before Jesus has taught anyone, before Jesus has done any miracles... All he's done is be baptized. Fast for 40 days and boom, there's Satan. Now Satan has some temptations, has some, some challenges for him. Satan says, turn the bread, turn the rocks into bread. I know you're hungry. Jesus says, no, that's, that's not what I'm about. I'm not about serving myself. Okay? I don't live by, by bread alone, but by the word of God. And and then Satan says, well, why don't you prove to yourself, you haven't done any miracles yet, you know, I mean, you're new to this Messiah thing. Why don't we go to the temple, you jump off, and and prove who you are. And the angels will catch you, right? If you're really the Messiah, then then the Old Testament says that the, the, the prophets have said that the angels will watch over you. They'll guard you and protect you. So you jump, they'll catch you. And then you'll know that you're the Messiah. You'll be ready to go. And Jesus says, no, no. Those same writings, scriptures also say, don't tempt the Lord your God. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus, do you want kingdoms? Jesus, you can have all the kingdoms in the world. You can have Babylon. You can have Athens. You can have Rome. You can't even see China over the horizon, but you can have China. There may not even be anything in the Americas yet, but you can have the Americas. Like like Satan is making a deal and saying... Any power that's out there, you can have more than that. They can all serve you. Then you'll be king of kings. That's a pretty good thing, Jesus. Jesus says no. He says no because, A, he's not going to worship Satan. But also, he didn't want those kingdoms. You see, the assumption was that Jesus would be tempted by that power, by those kingdoms, by those earthly kingdoms, by those big cities, by those grand palaces, that, that Jesus would be tempted to accumulate those for himself and say, this is my kingdom. I'm in charge of all of this. But Jesus wasn't tempted. His purpose in coming to earth was to establish his own kingdom. And so when Jesus immediately begins preaching, this is just a little further down in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus' message is very simple. Repent. That's the Ezekiel message, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come here. If you're bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, then why would you want to give it up? For those earthly kingdoms. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that rolling out the heavenly kingdom is going to be easy. It's going to go through the cross, but, but Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is better and greater, grander and more desirable than any or all of those earthly kingdoms. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I think that Jesus' preaching would have resonated with Daniel. If Daniel had been in that crowd, he might have said, I think I see a rock cut without human hands off in the distance coming down from heaven. And I think it's headed towards a statue. And I can see that statue that represents all of the kingdoms of this earth. I can see that statue is going to fall because nothing can stand before that rock from heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so I wonder, does that resonate with you? Does that resonate with you? Are you as passionate, as excited about the kingdom of heaven as you are about the other kingdoms that we have around us? Whether they be political, industrial, commercial, whatever circles we work in, there are These kingdoms that compete with the kingdom of heaven. Which one excites you the most? Because there's only one kingdom that's built to last.